1: We sure did, Matt. We sure did. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and a producer who we will introduce in a second. Tonight, we talked about liver tests. We're not allowed to call them liver function tests, but uh, we had a great guest, Dr. Elliot Tapper, who you may know from Liver Twitter. And on the show, we just went through all sorts of various cases and flavors of liver test abnormalities Paul, before you introduce our super producer, can you tell the audience, what is it that we generally do on this podcast? So
0: glad you asked, Matt. Generally, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We have with us, am I, is it okay to introduce our mystery guest? Sure. I feel like there's a lot of buildup here. Um, <laughs> sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: we have with us the amazing producer, Dr. Elena Gibson. Um, who put together a spectacular episode about evaluating all the ways that the liver can go south on us. Um, And so I'm going to pass the mic to her to tell her about who we talked to and a little bit about what we talked about.
2: All right. Thanks. Got to figure out how to follow that up, but we do (laughs) have a great conversation about liver tests and what to do when you find abnormalities with Elliot Tapper. He is an MD who wants you to love hepatology. Uh, When he's not writing papers, grants, or tweets, wow, that's impressive, he is a suburban dad who spends the non-frozen months picking fruit across Michigan. In his day job, he takes care of patients with liver disease at the University of Michigan, where he is associate professor and director of the Michigan cirrhosis program.
1: Do you have a pun for the audience or perhaps an an obscure pick of the week?
2: Mm. So... I, I really didn't come prepared this time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you can all check out Elena's I could tropical give you a house pick of the week. Oh, oh, oh yeah, go Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, it, what's your pick of the week?
2: In addition to tropical house music, my new favorite hobby is watching Formula 1 racing. And I don't know <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good time and Uh I'm actually going to the race in Austin, but it's, there's a show on Netflix. If you want a nice introduction, it's called drive to survive. And it's a very like drama filled reality TV show of formula one. So highly recommend.
1: I'm speechless, Paul. Let's just get to the episode.
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) Elliot,
1: thank you for joining us. And tell the audience a one-liner about yourself. Maybe throw in a hobby or interest outside medicine. Hey,
3: great to be with you guys. Elliot Tapper, Hepatology, University of Michigan. My free time is spent with my kids at the park or reading old papers.
1: That, that is fantastic. What is your favorite old paper? To Do you have any that are relevant tonight? Will you be pulling out any old papers as a teaser for the audience like that we can refer them to about this topic tonight?
3: Uh, I, I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to keep those cards close to my chest.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. I'll defer to one of my co-hosts for the next question. Then. I've actually excavated through
0: a lot of book recommendations, and I, I'm just I've chosen to ignore a whole stack of them. But I just in case I'm wondering if you have any recent books or even not so recent books that you've enjoyed that you can recommend. It doesn't have to be medical. Just just anything distracting would be great.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I used to read a ton of books, a ton, and I'm not sure that I. Have read any books since *The Selfish Gene*, uh, <laughs> and I don't, I'm not really sure why I read that. But uh, I've been watching a lot of Bravo, uh, so if, if you like a recommendation for, from that channel, there's nothing give it I to. would like more. Yeah, okay. wait on so, me because I know
0: it's going to be good just based on the channel.
3: Yeah, so so basically, below deck Mediterranean. That's where we're at at the Tapper household.
1: I believe what? someone re. <laughs> do it, was wasn't it there? A, was, it, was it a was there a medicine one? Some medicine related Bravo show is below deck. Like is is that a medicine oh, one? Wasn't it? The-
3: it is very far from medicine. However, oh, you do get to watch them deal with the COVID pan- the pandemic in <laughs> real time. So I guess there's that. But uh, okay. no, and uh, sometimes there's sexually transmitted diseases. That's the closest it gets. Great.
0: <laughs> so it's still educational. Fantastic. Yes. That's all I'm asking. <laughs>
2: I'm imagining some like real housewives on a boat right now, but I, I don't actually know what this show is. So,
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's been recommended before. And I think maybe we made the same mistake last time, Paul, asking if it was a medical show. So <laughs> you know what? I'm not, I'm not ashamed that I, uh, but it sounds great. So thank you. We're always looking for some escapism when we're, we're getting these recommendations as well. Elaine, anything else you wanted to ask about before we get on to the main topic?
2: Uh no, I think I think that's good. It's a good place to start.
1: Okay. All right, audience, so check out below deck. <laughs> audience, you know I'm a fan of BetterHelp. That's Better, H E L P. And this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've told you before, I was using their service for like six months before they even became a sponsor on the show. I think it's such a great idea, and I'm so glad that it's finally available. You get to avoid those awkward therapist waiting rooms. And from the comfort of your own home, you can talk with a therapist by phone or video chat. You can send them messages, and they'll get right back to you. It's easy to find a therapist, and you could start communicating in under 48 hours. And it's great because they have a broad range of expertise which maybe in person that wouldn't be available in your local area. And since they want you to have a great therapeutic relationship, they make it easy and free to change a therapist if you need to. Like I said before, I've done that and it was really simple and easy and I got a great match afterwards. Visit betterhelp.com curb, that's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. There's a special offer for Curbsiders listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. Now we're going to get into a case from CashLack.
2: All right. So the first case we have today is Miss Dill Lee. She's a 59-year-old female. She has a history of hypertension, has some diabetes, and then she also has these recurrent urinary tract infections. She's coming in with a two-week history of abdominal pain, diarrhea, and nausea. She gets some chemistry labs that are notable for an AST of 1968, an ALT of 1010, an ALK FOS of 188, and a total bilirubin of 1.2. She has no prior history of liver disease, and her CMP was normal six months prior. So, uh, starting off with some basics, how do you define or categorize what's known as liver function tests or liver chemistries, and what do you think about doing next?
3: Well, uh, I'm going to have to stop you right there, because uh, as a card-carrying hepatologist, I have sworn an oath to correct everybody who says (laughs) liver function tests. And so, uh, we all get triggered by that term. I don't know why it is, Mm -hmm. but uh, it is part of our professional responsibility to tell you that ALT and AST, these are liver enzymes that are relatively specific for the hepatocyte. They are the limited vocabulary that the hepatocyte has to tell you about uh, if it's upset uh, alkaline phosphatase tends to be from the uh, bile duct so it, it tends to speak to cholestatic or biliary uh, injury and then you have other tests of liver function like the INR the platelet because the liver makes thrombopoietin, bilirubin because it's responsible both for its conjugation and elimination but if you wanted to get esoteric there are ways that you can measure true liver function. Uh, you have you know, albumin, which tells you about liver function on the order of you know two weeks, uh, given its half-life. But if you wanted to know about the function of the the liver today, right now, you could measure things like factor five levels. And there are a variety of tests throughout the literature that get at hepatic metabolism. So, you can measure hepatic mitochondrial metabolism with the 13C methionine breath test. And there's even more fun tests. So, in the 60s, like Sheila Sherlock, the first lady of hepatology, would give people with cirrhosis ammonia and see if they would end up comatose. And if they didn't, basically this is the ammonia clearance test. So if you develop symptoms, <laughs> you were sick. Okay. So that's one way you could do it. I don't recommend that. Uh, another fun test is the caffeine clearance test where you give somebody the equivalent of Starbucks and then measure the half-life of caffeine. These are validated measure- measures of liver function, which actually correlate with things like mortality.
0: So I have two questions. The first is she fed people ammonia and still got the title of, like the the first lady of hepatology.
3: Yeah, but she but right. she she definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> Good. For her. And then
0: the follow up test is there any other um, terminology pitfalls we should be wary of? So you mentioned the liver function test is triggering. I imagine transaminitis um, will just send you into collapse. Is there anything else that we should be cognizant of? No,
3: I
1: think I think we're cool.
3: You know, some okay. people some people are transaminitis, but I pick my battles. Liver function test that's where it's at.
1: <laughs> Can so, I ask a, a really basic follow up to that? Can we say LFTs in our notes just for abbreviation because everyone knows what we mean? Or should we change it to like a new acronym?
3: No, I I will allow you to say LFTs because everybody (laughs) knows what you're talking about. But however, you are free to review my notes at Cash Like Hospital when I'm rounding and you will never see LFTs.
1: You you use L liver enzyme elevation? I
3: I spell everything out and I write it in cursive. (laughs) it's It's very formal. Yeah. Okay,
1: so, no further questions.
3: Yeah, so this is this lady in terms of the 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 second question. The the next step here is a complete history in physical, but you you kind of gave away the thing that concerns you the most when you hear about someone who had normal liver enzymes in your clinic very recently, and that is that she had this urinary tract infection. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm grilling people about the things that they have ingested, be it medications, supplements, uh, or anything that is new or a departure from their usual.
1: Yeah. And her name is just awesome as well. Uh, we we when we were talking about the the liver tests, uh, do we did we mention GGT yet? And can you talk a little bit about that?
3: So, uh GGT is branded as a way of determining whether or not the alkaline phosphatase is coming from the liver. So, it's important to recognize that the alkaline phosphatase is really a family of enzymes that can be from the placenta, the prostate, the intestine, the bone. And because Many people could have liver disease and bone disease. There can be a concern if you have isolated, elevated alkaline phosphatase, which is certainly not the case here, that you would use a GGT to somehow confirm that. But unfortunately, that, that doesn't play out in, in real life practice because anything that affects the liver, anything that causes oxidative stress in the liver is going to raise your GGT level. So it's incredibly nonspecific. It's definitely going to be elevated in cholestatic disease, but it will also be elevated in alcohol-related liver disease, drug-induced related liver disease, and so forth.
2: All right. So do you still use it?
3: You know, I don't order that much GGT.
2: Yeah. I I wanted to
1: ask a follow-up about that too. And I'm not sure about you, Elena, but I, I know that there's a way to fractionate alkaline phosphatase. It hasn't really been institutional culture anywhere that I've worked to order it. And I don't even know if our lab does that. Is that something that you're doing at your, your version of cash lack, Elena?
2: No, I haven't ever seen a way to do it either.
1: Okay. So, so Elliot, is that something we should be doing
3: Okay, well, when you see a patient with elevated alkaline phosphatase, it, it does it should trigger a pathway of thought that is quite distinct from someone that is presenting with what would be a hepatocellular injury, and it might be worth going through like how you th- categorize the particular injury to Miss Dilly's liver, but. You know, I, I see a lot of patients who come to me with elevated alkaline phosphatase. So there is a few times a year that I'm definitely doing the send out test to fractionate the alkaline phosphatase as a way of basically providing a positive diagnosis for my clinical judgment. Rather than tell the primary care, just trust me that it's coming from the liver or (laughs) just trust me it's coming from the bone, uh, it's worthwhile in the consultant's hands to do that. But the number of times in clinical practice where you really need to sort these kinds of things out is relatively limited.
1: Okay. We'll have a case audience. We will get into a case about that a little bit later. But to go on a little bit with this case, you, you mentioned that this wouldn't be the right case to to really think about that kind of thing. So how do you, in general, when you're looking at a set of liver tests like this, how do you think about it? How do you categorize it?
3: Well, I think – It's important to determine whether or not you're dealing with a cholestatic injury because it conjures a different pathway of thought in terms of imaging or the specific role of biopsy or other medications. So in this case, here I have a person who has an ALT and an AST that is several fold the upper limit of normal and an alkaline phosphatase that is just a little bit above what the lab would would mark as red. And so it, you don't really need like a, a hard algorithm to tell you that this is a so-called hepatocellular injury. We sometimes use this thing called the R score or the R-index where you basically take the number of times the upper limit of normal that you get for the ALT and divide it by the number of times the upper limit of normal for the alkaline phosphatase and if it's greater than 5, we would call that hepatocellular. If it's less than 2, we'd call it cholestatic and in this case, you could see that uh, you're you're clearly dealing with something that's greater than 5, hepatocellular injury. And so, when I start to think through, like, what can be causing hepatocellular injury, I have in my mind, you know, a differential diagnosis, which is informed in part by the context in which I'm seeing this patient. And this is a lady who's just strolling into clinic. And in this setting, I'm thinking about things like drug-induced liver injury. I'm thinking about autoimmune hepatitis, and depending on the context, recent viral hepatitis. If she was sicker, I would think about things like ischemic hepatitis and drug-induced injury that can have a little more dire consequences, like things like Tylenol toxicity and the like.
0: I feel like this is one of those, I, maybe nightmare scenario is probably overstating it, but like you check the the liver uh, enzyme test, just because it seems like the right thing to do for someone with her symptoms, and you trust that they're going to come back okay, or just maybe a little bit wonky, and then these come back, and they, they're in they're four digits, and you're like, oh, no, now what? So I guess my, my question about this is sort of how do you stratify these patients and sort of how are, are there are definitions or classifications that can be helpful in doing that?
3: That's a great question. So the first thing I'll say is that sometimes when I see that these labs come back to the shock of the primary care doctor, but then they decide to just do follow-up and and reach out to the hepatologist, I say, that's the primary care doctor I want. Because like, uh, if if I had to see those tests in my own clinic, I would get worried. I'd start thinking about admitting the patient. But in this case, we know several things that tell us that her prognosis is going to be very good. So it turns out that the prognosis of a a liver injury that you suspect is going to be drug-related is informed in large part by the height of the alkaline phosphatase, the height of the bilirubin, and the duration from the ingestion of the uh, offending uh, uh, agent to the time of presentation. Now, she does need some other evaluation to make sure that we are dealing with uh, the um, drug-induced liver injury, and we do need to watch her, or at least call her, uh, follow her closely for making sure that she's not developing any other general symptoms, that she's not you know, becoming anorexic, dehydrated, developing some kind of kidney injury, where I would think about this is a actually more a severe presentation of acute liver injury. But right now, looking at her, I'm, I'm thinking this is somebody where I could just watch closely and she'll be okay.
0: I was delighted to see the American College of Gastroenterology Guidelines practice the Williams rule, which is if, the lab, if you don't like the lab, just repeat it and hope it gets normal <laughs> yeah. again. So I was glad to see that was one of the first recommendations <laughs> they made.
1: Can, Sorry, Matt. Can you elaborate a little bit on the time for a drug-induced liver injury? How does the time affect? If they present sooner after t- – Using the drug, is that better or worse? It's better. Like she's about two weeks out. Yeah, better. So it's better the sooner they present? Yeah. Okay.
3: But that's not the most critical feature in the determination of prognosis after drug-induced liver injury. It's the height of the bilirubin that's going to be your number one thing. So this lady is rolling in already with the most important – the bilirubin – You know, in all things liver disease, that's basically the thermometer, right? My heart rate is tied in an intimate way to the bilirubin, be it from (laughs) alcohol-related liver disease, drug-induced liver injury, pregnancy-related
1: liver disease, everything. All right. Elena, is there more to this case?
2: Yeah. So, I think we kind of touched on, you know, her pattern is consistent with a hepatocellular injury and then just some more history you know, it doesn't sound like she's had liver disease before. Uh, she, at one point, had a CT of her abdomen and pelvis, uh, and it showed a normal appearing liver. This is about a year ago. She had some pyelonephritis. And then she's not a heavy alcohol consumer. She drinks about two glasses of wine a week. And her other her medicines include hydrochlorothiazide. She takes some loraglutide and metformin. And She said that she's not taking any new medications or supplements, kind of to your questioning, but she did recently complete this 14-day course of nitrofurantoin, and that was about two weeks ago for her UTI. So thinking about working up the other causes of her acute liver injury, what additional workup would you recommend as far as labs or any imaging?
3: Okay, so uh, when you have someone that presents with a massive elevation in the ALT or AST, it's always going to be valuable to check for acute viral hepatitis. And that is hep B, hep C, hep A. And these days, you know, I see people just like click in the box for every potential hepatotropic virus, EBV, CMV. It's it's almost never going to be those unless the patient just had a transplant or got chemo. So you definitely want to make sure that it's not a treatable hepatotropic virus. The only time, the only thing I've ever regretted by being swayed by the hepatocellular injury is that if you see somebody with a a significant liver injury and particularly if they have abdominal symptoms you are never wrong in getting imaging because bile duct stones not cholelithiasis, but choledocholethiasis can often present this way so acute obstruction can have massive elevation in alt chronic obstruction can have middling elevation in alt and you definitely want an ultrasound, and if your index of suspicion, like they're not telling you about any potential drug exposures, they don't have viral hepatitis, and therefore you're really searching for a cause, you would think about getting cross-sectional imaging like an MRCP. Then you have that you know that grab bag of tests that every hepatologist orders, but doesn't necessarily prove to be particularly helpful. <laughs> In this case, I will endorse testing for autoimmune hepatitis, which for this lady would be an ANA, an anti-smooth muscle, and an IgG level. And I would not endorse the role of iron testing, because there's no such thing as acute hemochromatosis, no matter how much we wish to will it into existence. <laughs> and, and again, if you are looking for Wilson disease... In a 59-year-old person, you are basically hoping to write a case report. That's basically what (laughs) – and uh, uh, and, uh, uh, ceruloplasmin is not a a particularly good test. So, I do see it ordered. It does – I've told the fellows that uh, when I do, I have a partial infarction of my spleen, and uh, that's quite painful (laughs) for me. Uh, But if you're really worried about other causes, rare causes, after the basic evaluation has been done – then you can think about uh, super rare causes after that.
1: Yeah. Would the same go for the, I guess, like the alpha-1 antitrypsin, the Wilsons? Those are the kind of less common or you could say rare, I guess, in this case of Wilsons, rare things. And in in a patient that's presenting acutely like this one, you know, that doesn't, alpha-1 antitrypsin, would that also not be something that would present acutely?
3: Precisely, right. So alpha-1 antitrypsin cannot present acutely. And, you know, when it does present with liver disease, it's usually the people with alpha-1 antitrypsin who present with elevated liver enzymes typically have risk factors for things like fatty liver disease. Like alpha-1 antitrypsin is like kindling for fatty liver disease. If you look at it across national databases, that's the kind of person who presents for care because of elevated liver enzymes. So, again, the, the, main, the only tests that are not going to give you an answer at all are iron tests and alpha-1 antitrypsin. Ceruloplasmin testing for Wilson disease might give you an answer you don't want as it's often positive. But uh, the thing you don't want to sleep on is biliary obstruction.
1: Right. So yeah, with the biliary obstruction, I I would commonly, I've seen this many times now where person comes in, often they'll have pain, the enzymes are in the several hundreds. I I haven't seen them as often in the thousands, but then like the next morning they've like come drastically down and the patient feels better, looks better. And, you know, even if you don't see a stone, in some cases, that's my assumption is that it was a stone.
3: I think that's a great assumption as you have a stone that is either passed or is ball valving up and down the duct with transient obstruction that gets relieved as it refluxes back up. And so my strategy when I see that kind of thing is sometimes those stones are super small is I I do the blood tests when the patient has pain. So they come to see me after the primary care doctor has seen elevated liver enzymes. The, The enzymes are normal. And then I say, here, just call me when you have pain. We check the labs. Boom. If you have pain and elevated liver enzymes, you have a very good uh, clinical diagnosis of choledochalithiasis.
0: And Elliot, can you speak to how womped up in these cases of acute liver injury where you have an AST in 1900 and the ALT of of 1010, like how... How excited should we get about the ratio of one to the other? Does that does that matter so much? I feel like it would be easy to anchor on, like, alcohol use, even though this patient sort of declines history just because of this specific ratio. Like, is that something we should be paying – a whole lot of attention to in the acute setting or does it not matter so much or is it toxin specific?
3: Yeah, I appreciate you bringing this up because people do they, – they remember the ratio of AST to ALT where it is said that those with alcoholic hepatitis have a ratio of AST to ALT that's like two to one. But alcohol creates a relatively low level of elevated liver enzymes compared to this. So if the AST – plus ALT is less than 500, then you can suspect alcohol-related liver disease. But if it's greater than that, the odds that this is being caused by alcohol is super low. And I don't exactly know why, but once the ALT or AST is over 1000, that breakdown is way out the door there's probably differences in clearance of AST and synthesis of ALT that is happening when the liver is jacked up like this i don't particularly know but i can tell you for certain that the ratio means nothing when you have massively elevated liver enzymes like this
1: because we're suspecting for miss dilly a drug induced liver injury uh she was recently on nitrofurantoin and when we went to the ACP conference recently and paul had brought one of the pearls he brought back was that certain drugs have like a signature to them. And one of those signatures can be like an autoimmune hepatitis type picture. If nitrofurantoin is one of those, what would you expect when you order the ANA, the anti-smooth muscle antibody, the IgG pattern? Like what would a positive, what would it look like on a typical basis when you're getting that back?
3: Yeah. So, there are a couple of drugs that are known to be associated with autoimmune hepatitis. Nitrofurantoin is one of them. Minocycline is a classic one, and you do see the classic pattern of positive tests for autoimmune hepatitis in many of those cases, which is to say, a very large titer in ANA. Uh, so, it's not just going to be like 1 to 80. It's going to be very long. You're going to have flagrantly positive smooth muscle antibody. So, not just 1 to 20, but greater than 1 to 80. And the IgG is not going to be like a 1,000 or 1,500, like borderline positive. It will be several fold that when you have full-blown autoimmune hepatitis. But I'll tell you that in my practice, I have diagnosed autoimmune hepatitis very rarely meeting criteria using those uh, serologic markers. Uh oftentimes if I'm worried about autoimmune hepatitis I've I've gotten a liver biopsy and I always get a liver biopsy before starting something like prednisone. So we'll talk about this maybe, but usually with drug-induced liver injury, it just gets better, particularly one that is not presenting with elevated bilirubin or alkaline phosphatase. But if it's not getting better and you're thinking about liver biopsy, you're really asking the question, is this drug an environmental exposure that has set off autoimmune hepatitis?
1: When you withdraw... Like she's been off the drug for two weeks. How long would you expect it to go back to normal for a drug-induced liver injury? And is it different if it's an autoimmune type than just another just direct toxic type?
3: Yeah. So the the short answer is there is no particular – cookbook answer to how long this lasts. So depending on the height of the elevated liver enzymes or my concern about the patient, I'm usually checking these labs somewhat frequently, like once a week until I have established the trend uh, over time. And once I'm more comfortable with the trajectory, then I start to peel back. And I have seen it take a couple of years to completely normalize drug-induced liver injury of this sort. And if it's not normalizing, then we have a discussion about pulling the trigger on liver biopsy because I'm not just going to use steroids willy-nilly.
1: Okay. Yeah, this is unfamiliar territory for me. This is uh, this is fantastic. I... Um... Uh, Elena, is there more to this case? What are, are we gonna are we gonna let Miss Dilly off the hook here? Is she gonna get better? What's <laughs> happening?
2: Yeah, I think not completely relevant to her, but I think it's also helpful to think about what defines drug induced liver injury. So in her, it's pretty clear that she has this liver injury, and her biggest risk factor was um, this recent nitrofurantoin. Uh, it looks like the rest of her labs came back negative, like she, her hepatitis labs were negative or HIV was negative, which I don't know if we mentioned that one, but uh, her ANA was negative. And so, really, it comes back to drug-induced liver injury and just thinking about how would you define this? And if it, if her liver tests weren't quite so elevated, when would you think about stopping a medication if it was just a slight elevation versus continuing the medication?
3: Well... The definition of drug-induced liver injury is something that you are free to make in your in your own clinic. Okay, if you see someone who you've known for a while pop positive liver enzymes after you've started a medication, it, even if it doesn't rise to the level that would be included in an official international case series for drug for DILI, then that's okay. So typically, when you see these consortia that have compiled the lists of usual offenders for DILI. They're including patients who've had an elevated ALT that's like greater than five times the upper limit of normal, or something that is two times the upper limit of normal for alkaline phosphatase or some combination between the two. That generally forms the denominator. But if your patient, you know, barely meets that, it's okay for you to stop a medicine and see what happens. The, The truth is that things like statins are often started in people who have risk factors for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that is a condition where the liver enzymes can go up and then go down. And so if you are checking the, the labs frequently, you might see elevated liver enzymes that will wane over time. The, the key here is how much higher uh, have they gone? Do, do they rise to the level of, of, of true concern before you stop a medicine that might have uh, significant benefits?
1: All right. So we're saying this patient, Elena, so we're saying she she did not have the autoimmune pattern on her labs. We really didn't no. find anything. We just know she had this exposure. So, this, so we can make a presumptive diagnosis that this was a drug-induced liver injury. And uh, in that case, other than stopping the drug, Elliot, is there anything else that we need to do?
3: No. And this is a case where less is more. It's often thought that uh, you could help by giving something like prednisone. It doesn't help. Uh, If there's an elevated alkaline phosphatase, you'll see many people in the hepatology sphere give something like ursodiol, and that may or may not change the labs. It certainly doesn't help the uh, natural history. If they're starting to have complications of the drug-induced liver injury, like they have severe cholestasis and itching, it's totally reasonable to try things to help with that cholestasis. Ursodiol might help, and then you'll see us use other supportive care for that itch, things like cholestyramine, and uh, that's about it.
1: Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank that's making banking better for doctors because it was built by two practicing doctors and they understand your financial frustrations. Whether you're a student, a resident, or an attending, Panacea Financial is a bank designed for you. Panacea offers free checking, no ATM fees nationwide, 24-7 customer service, and loan options designed specifically for physicians. Instead of running up credit card debt, try out their PRN Personal Loan. It gives you a better way to cover expenses like relocation, board exams, or even home renovations, and its PRN Personal Loan is funded in as little as 24 hours at less than half the interest rate of a credit card. And if you're a physician in training, you can have a period of no or reduced payments. Panacea Financial also gives you an opportunity to refinance your medical school debt with low fixed rates to choose from and no cosigners or maximums. To top it off, every Panacea Financial customer gets their own free personal banker they're always a phone call or email away to provide you with personalized advice that you deserve, no matter where you move in your career. If you're ready to join the doctors who have declared independence from traditional banks, then visit PanaceaFinancial.com. That's P-A-N-A-C-E-A Financial.com today to open your free account. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC so we have some more cases to get into I, I wanted to just ask one follow-up question because i mean part of the desire f- for doing this show is to of course learn how to interpret these but also i want to know like which labs should we and shouldn't we be ordering and a, a lot of the times there's like these liver kidney microsome and there's like a, it seems like there's a little bit of an expanded paddle that goes along with the autoimmune you gave us a pretty simplified ANA anti-smooth muscle antibody and the IgG, which is the same as what like what the guidelines say. Where do these other tests come from? And is it ever helpful for for us to be ordering them?
3: Yeah, so the anti-liver kidney microsomal one is something that's going to be typically elevated in autoimmune hepatitis that's associated with young children. There's another test that I have ordered from time to time where I see seronegative uh, autoimmune hepatitis in middle-aged women called the soluble liver antigen. They are almost never positive. Now, if you run a specialist clinic for autoimmune hepatitis, you'll definitely see this because you're testing this more frequently. But at the end of the day, I I need to manage the patient. And if I'm going to be worried about autoimmune hepatitis, I'm going to go with a liver biopsy. And there's nothing about those other serologic tests that would change my decision making. So you'll, you'll see me using the most standard tests, rarely using other tests, and going based on histology
1: for clinical decision making. Fantastic. Elena, you want to go on to the next cases?
2: Yes. Can I ask a quick question? Is there a difference between an F-actin and an anti-smooth muscle antibody?
3: So I, I think this is a good question because it varies based on lab availability. The question that you're asking is, how do I distinguish between F-actin and anti-smooth muscle. They're basically measuring the exact same thing but they speak more to the nature of the assay which is variable from lab to lab. F-actin will give you an overall amount of the antigen detected that uh, is measured directly in units and the uh, smooth muscle antibody will give you a titer from a dilution test. They are roughly equivalent and this has actually been studied that uh, both of those tests are equally effective in the diagnosis of smooth muscle antibody. It's just that they're two different lab techniques.
2: Okay, that's helpful. Uh, So I think the next case, we have Miss Stacy Cole. She's a 43-year-old female. She's coming to her PCP with fatigue, itching, and feeling overall kind of foggy. Her labs are notable for an alkaline phosphatase of 294. Her AST is 60. Her ALT is 87. And her total bilirubin is 0.3. She has no notable family or personal history of liver disease or concerning factors that could contribute. And her prior hepatitis screening was negative. She does not drink any alcohol. So, just thinking through what would be your differential for an isolated or disproportionate elevation in alkaline phosphatase?
3: So, I I think that elevated alkaline phosphatase is the most fun elevated liver enzyme to evaluate and uh
1: oh i uh, hope I can share your your yeah. feeling about <laughs> that after it. we this this discussion <laughs>
3: uh, it's a, a, a the the first thing is um that uh you know the the setup here is a you know, a 40-year-old woman with fatigue and itching, feeling foggy, and th- those are the words that will conjure up your concern for primary biliary cholangitis. And you're definitely going to want to test for that with an anti mitochondrial antibody. But the truth is, it's actually a pretty rare condition. So the most common things that are going to cause this are going to be infiltrative conditions of the liver, obstructive conditions of the liver, And then rarely, you'll actually see things like fatty liver disease present like this. Fatty liver disease can present with itching and an elevated alkaline phosphatase. And it's always fun to see this improve with something like weight loss or bariatric surgery. So when I see an elevated alkaline phosphatase, this is someone who needs an imaging test. And usually if they're coming to a consultant, I'm ordering something like an MRCP. But I think the best thing to do is to start with an ultrasound. So the overall differential here is going to be biliary obstruction, you have primary biliary conditions like things like PBC or primary sclerosing cholangitis, sarcoid, CVID has its own liver disease that shows up not infrequently in the consult space, and also drug-induced liver injury, of course.
1: Yeah, I think this lady has a mixed pattern. Paul and I were talking about this in pre-recording. It's very common I'll send labs on someone in a primary care panel and I get an isolated ALKFOS that's like 160, 170, the upper limit of normal is 130, and then I just repeat it and sometimes it hangs out there, sometimes it's normal the next time, you know, like 120s, and then sometimes it'll go back up. Is that something that you think is worthwhile working up? I mean, we asked you about the GGT earlier. Do you get a GGT on these people to see if we think it's coming from the... The liver? Do we start working up the bone? How would you approach that? Uh, probably. Hopefully, that's not making it to your clinic too much, but <laughs> in my clinic, it's there all the time.
3: Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting you bring this up because I have given talks at primary care uh, symposia where I talk about this pathway for L- elevated alkaline phosphatase, and you know, I live in my own little space. And then someone came up to me in the audience and said, "If I sent every single patient to you for evaluation, then I'd be sending." 20 to 30% of my panel. And so the the question here is the threshold at which you're concerned. And I think that the patient is telling you that they're concerned here because they have these symptoms, the itching, the fatigue, and potentially uh, the fogginess. So particularly the itching tells you that this is something that the patient should be worried about. But seeing a mildly elevated alkaline phosphatase is a sign that uh, maybe I would want to recheck it but the most common reason for this is going to be things like insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, fatty liver disease is still going to be the number one reason for all of this and so the general recommendations that you would give for good living to all of your patients are going to apply there and I don't think that there's any reason to rush to working up a mild elevation in alkaline phosphatase not forgetting about it, trending it out, seeing what happens over time.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's, thank you for that. <laughs> because it, it's, yeah, is that nightmares? Again, nightmare is probably an overstatement where, where I'll check a CMP for reasons unclear to me and follow-up. Like <laughs> I, I don't know why I did this rather than a basic <laughs> metabolic panel, but now here I am stuck with it with this mildly elevated alcohol. And almost always the patient's completely asymptomatic. I think if they had the symptoms of cholestasis or they had the fatigue and the itching, I would certainly get whomped up. But like, this sort of slightly elevated one that kind of flits in and out of the ranges of normal. I never quite know what to do with. And I feel like that's actually a pretty good explanation. Would you consider ultrasonography if only to establish like the, a degree of steatosis? Like, is that a reasonable thing to sort of chase down in that setting?
3: Yeah. So I I think uh, you have two options here. One is that you can let time be the arbiter of truth here, what happens to the patient. And depending on the uh, stakes at play, you're checking it at three months, six months, 12 months. Or if you think that a positive diagnosis is necessary, then I would definitely advocate for something like an ultrasound. Now, typically in my clinic, when I'm thinking about, well, what's really at stake for this diagnosis, then I want to get a sense of well, could this person have an advanced liver disease? And this might be a little bit off topic as we're talking maybe more about diagnosis. But in terms of prognosis for these stable parts of the bread and butter of primary care, things like mild cholestasis, things like elevated liver enzymes due to fatty liver disease, I'm always Googling fibrosis for index and I'm trying to figure out is this person at high risk for advanced fibrosis or if they're in my clinic, I'm doing things like transient elastography aka fibroscan which helps me get a sense of how significant is this potential liver disease in this person and if i see very reassuring values there then i opt towards using time to diagnose the condition
1: this lady miss stacy cole here she's she has her alcfast is twice the upper limit normal she also has the liver enzymes elevated her not her bilirubin and so you said we would get uh, definitely we could get imaging in her. Anything else? And this would be a little vexing to me, you know, of course, ask her about medications, you said, but any other testing that you would send for her? Would you send like the ANA, anti-mitochondrial antibody, those sort of things as well?
3: Yeah. So this is a person where if I checked an AMA, anti-mitochondrial antibody, and it came back positive, then I would consider this case closed as primary barely cholangitis. It would be okay to make this diagnosis with no further evaluation at all. I would definitely want to have an ultrasound. And I'm probably going to check an ANA anytime I check an anti uh, anti mitochondrial antibody and a smooth muscle. And um, I would really only biopsy if the patient had a concern for something like autoimmune hepatitis. But in this case where it's predominantly a picture like PBC with cholestasis, I'm thinking we're done. Okay. PBC.
1: All right. Elena, we have another case?
2: Yeah. So speaking of isolated elevations... You have a 37-year-old male. He comes in with chronic elevations in his total bilirubin uh, just over the last about year of lab checks. And his last total bilirubin was 4.2. He doesn't have any liver disease. He doesn't have any symptoms. He was just trying to get some refills on his hypertensive medicines. And now you're trying to think about what could have caused his isolated hyperbilirubinemia and how would you evaluate that?
3: So the... The classic distinction for hyperbilirubinemia is to start with fractionation, and if you have a patient where more than half of the bilirubin is direct, we would call this a direct hyperbilirubinemia, and usually it's not close, but when you have something that causes predominant elevation in indirect hyperbilirubinemia, it's going to be like 80 to 90 percent indirect bilirubin. And there, you're really asking the question, is my patient hemolyzing? If they're not hemolyzing, you can arrive at a diagnosis of Gilbert's without doing genetic testing. Now, the issue is that hemolysis testing, things like getting a haptoglobin and LDH or a tick count, is going to be problematic when you have someone with underlying liver disease. So in my world, It's really hard to diagnose hemolysis, even though it happens, because my patients don't make haptoglobin, they have borderline elevated LDH, and so I'm typically asking for a smear to make that diagnosis. But in the clinic, without a patient that has established cirrhosis, it's pretty easy to sort that out.
1: I usually, I don't know about you, Paul. It, do you see the the Billy this high when you're thinking about Joe Bears? Usually, like, and for me, it seems a, like I see a lot of like one point five, one point six, and I'm like, ah, it's probably Joe Bear. Like, I'll yeah. so I'll fractionate it. But is is there a level where you would be like, no, that's too high? Probably, I, I might think of something else, Elliot.
3: So I uh, I agree with you that um, you know four is going to be in the sort of top range for what the, what people will present with, with Chilbert's, although, you know, I've seen it many times. The key things to remember with Chilbert's is that these are people who are have essentially hypo-functioning UDP, glutamyl transferase protein. There are things that can make that remaining functioning protein better or worse, and the things that make it worse are going to be fasting, uh, a lack of sleep, things like smoking, And what you might want to do is say to the patient, please do not get a fasting level, Uh, do it after a good night's sleep, and then you would repeat it. There are certain things that can increase your bilirubin levels, something like rifampin. So, where the question is unclear there have been trials of giving people rifampin and seeing what happens to their bilirubin. And although rifampin will increase all bilirubin, it will predominantly increase the indirect bilirubin by greater than one point nine if the patient is fasting, and greater than one point five if the patient is not fasting.
1: Wow. I have never heard of that before. That's <laughs> Paul, are you gonna yeah. try that out? Yeah, no, I'm really like this pattern of making
0: diagnostics by poisoning patients. Like I just like seeing <laughs> How much they fail when I feed them toxins.
1: The caffeine doesn't sound that bad, but the ammonia yeah. and – and yeah, the, the ammonia doesn't sound great. And uh, th- this one either. Well – Yeah,
3: I don't recommend it. But you know, every now and then <laughs> you hear a story about uh, – where you hear about a patient that was like treated uh, for latent TB or something like that. And uh, and then they tell you that they got jaundiced uh, when they uh, were taking it. And um, and that's an exciting way for a patient to tell you that they have Gilbert's. Sure. <laughs> yes,
1: i I was looking this up uh, beforehand, and apparently some of the chemotherapeutic agents like it would actually be in play, like I think like Ireno Tcan or one of those there were some agents that you like you wouldn't wanna give give it to somebody with Joe Bears, apparently, which I had never heard of before, so but probably in a primary care realm not as relevant. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it, it, definitely not in primary care room, but it's it's actually super important to, to understand uh, if you're going to use arena Tcan whether a patient has Gilberts because uh, it can become incredibly toxic. I believe that's the only place where this diagnosis really matters.
1: <laughs> the the one other thing I wanted to go back uh, to the previous so, okay, so this for this case our 37 year old guy. You know we're we're gonna diagnose him with Joe Bears. Elena, are there any twists to this one? Uh, I, I had one other variation I wanted to do on the, the, the other case with Miss Stacy Cole. If she had presented with just the AST in this of 60 and ALT of 87, we see this all the time in primary care. And we've talked about this a little bit with the liver prof who's been on our show many times, but you alluded to this a little bit. Like for the patient with the chronic AST, ALT elevation, What is your standard approach that you would recommend? I'm sure you get a lot of people sent to you in primary care.
3: Yes. So I think that's going to be by far the most common pattern that you're going to see in clinic. And again, it's another situation where if you were going to refer every one of those patients to hepatology, you would basically just be referring half of your panel at this point in time in the United States. So in my practice, the thing that is most important is to understand the stage of the disease. And so when we do our, we, we do case finding research in hepatology where we're trying to find the patients that you're seeing that we would want to see in our clinic. And what we're essentially doing is either using off-the-shelf tools for prognostication like the fibrosis 4 index or trying to develop like machine learning algorithms that are basically looking at the trajectory of a patient's platelet count over time or the ratio of their ALT to AST because as platelet count goes down, it can be a sign of an increasingly unhealthy liver. And as the ratio of ALT to AST narrows over time, it can also be a sign of developing fibrosis in the liver. So that is the most important takeaway message, is what is at stake for this patient? And you cannot diagnose you know, fibrosis using those tests, but you can give yourself and the patient an estimate of the possibility of advanced fibrosis by using those non-invasive tools.
1: Okay.
2: Going back to Miss Stacy Cole, so let's say she's actually pregnant, we find out how would that change the interpretation of her um, abnormal liver test?
3: Well, it changes it in very important ways. So uh, the second a pregnant patient rolls into liver clinic, uh, it immediately induces tachycardia in all <laughs> hepatologists. And uh, But in general, if the patient is presenting As an outpatient, we're really dealing with elevated liver enzymes that have two main, three main causes. One is that, just to review, a pregnant patient is fully entitled to get all of the common liver diseases that can afflict a patient who is not pregnant. So you can't just zero in on the pregnancy-related causes, but those are essentially two. One, you will see elevated liver enzymes in patients with preeclampsia. And two, uh, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, which accounts for uh, probably about a third or one in five of all cases of elevated liver enzymes in patients with pregnancy. And that's typically what I see. So by the textbook, that is a patient that has a cholestatic liver injury. But for some reason, whenever I'm seeing them, they have markedly elevated ALT, just to scare me. (laughs) And this is a patient who will have elevated bile salts. They will feel in their elevated serum bile salts. They will feel terrible with a horrible itching pruritus. And uh, this is important in two ways. One. It's important to get those bile salts down because the elevation of the bile salts is directly related to the pregnancy outcomes for the fetus. So you want to get them below 37 and far below that, uh, uh, ideally. There are randomized clinical trials that tell us that the use of ursodiol is safe for mom and baby and improves overall itching symptoms. But if that doesn't work uh, for reducing bile salts, I will start things like uh, cholestyramine uh, twice a day, uh, four grams, uh, and you have to take it about a couple hours away from uh, when they're taking any other medications because it's a medicine that will bind up all of their other pills. and I'm always doing these things in conjunction with their uh, OB. Yes,
1: yeah, so I would be I would have the tachycardia as well for for these folks. I don't I'm not familiar uh, am I mis misremembering serum biosalts. That's not a test that I routinely order. is that is that like something you order in pregnant patients that when you're suspecting this specific diagnosis?
3: Yes, so it is definitely a send-out lab, and is not something that I'm ordering on my patients with liver disease who happen to report itching. I'm just managing it empirically. But in the context of a high-risk pregnancy, I'm not sure if it is standard of care, but it is certainly common practice to check it because of its association with fetal outcomes.
1: Okay, so you mentioned it, it will
3: help them. They'll actually they'll actually decide. About when to deliver the baby based on bile acid oh, elevations.
1: Wow. You mentioned the three things. So first, any liver disease that's available to non-pregnant patients is is available. Preeclampsia is another one, and then the intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And you said that's usually an alkalphos elevation, but your bad luck is that they have some sort of a curveball in there, like an elevated ALT that'll that'll get you, and then you can treat Correct. it treat it with the ursodiol and uh maybe a binder depending on what what's going on with the salts okay anything else about the pregnant patient that you would that you would think about doing like do these people get biopsied often or I, I imagine not but or maybe they do
3: yeah they definitely do not get biopsied often but at the point that you are biopsying a patient with pregnancy-related liver disease, it is someone who is not responding to therapy or has some other indication that has landed them in the hospital where they are. Where your index of suspicion for conditions like acute fatty liver of pregnancy or the HELP syndrome is uh, starting to rise. Uh, but it's really only in those cases that we've done liver biopsies.
1: Well, I think we have just a little bit of time left here. Elena, you have one more case for the audience?
2: Yes. So... He didn't get a fun name, but you have a sixty-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I was working on it, but not fast enough. Uh, he's coming into the UDE as abdominal pain. He has a history of alcohol use disorder, but quit drinking about two weeks ago. Does not describe a history of cirrhosis, and his labs are notable for an AST of sixteen thousand. His ALT is six thousand. His T-belly is around 6. His platelets are 10. It looks like the baseline for him is around 140 from prior labs, and his INR is 6. His Tylenol level was checked, and it was 90. And he describes taking a bottle full of extra strength Tylenol over the last two days for body aches associated with this COVID-19 infection. So thinking about his case compared to the prior cases that were more... I guess relatively mild injuries how do you define acute liver failure and what are the most common etiologies
3: so this guy is bringing the heat he, <laughs> uh, he he's He's got uh, a, a history of alcohol use disorder, COVID-19, which you decide to slip in at the last minute. And then and then also he is presenting with severe liver injury with a positive Tylenol level. So the first question is, is this acute liver failure? So acute liver failure requires as a prerequisite severe acute liver injury. So these are very high ALT and, you know, in the nomogram, for the uh, rate of severe liver failure due to Tylenol, they're really looking at ALTs greater than a thousand. And so if if it's less than a thousand, they're really not gonna be in the same category for acute liver failure. But what distinguishes the patient with liver failure from those with severe acute liver injury is that they have the coagulopathy, they have a severe elevation in their INR, and that they have hepatic encephalopathy. If you are not encephalopathic, but you have the other two things, then I'm worried about you, but you don't have fulminant or acute liver failure. The other part of the question is like what could cause it? You know, here this guy has multiple reasons, but in the United States, I'd like to put a plug out for a paper written by the Tony Brew, a multi center <laughs> a multi center study of which I was uh, uh uh I played a small part, and uh where he looked at the incidence of very high ALT, greater than a thousand, in a community hospital, a referral center, and at a VA. And so the number one causes there are going to be drug, choledochalithiasis, and ischemic hepatitis. Uh, Some places, like the VA, it won't be a drug. It will be uh, viral hepatitis, like acute hep B or hep C. So that's the sort of categories that are causing severe acute liver injury. Then acute liver failure is a very rare subset. It's actually a very rare condition in across the United States, despite how much we talk about it. But in the United States, this is really a disorder that's caused by drugs. So it's it's usually gonna be it's most of it is going to be Tylenol, acetaminophen, and the and the remainder will be a smattering of antiepileptics and antibiotics, and very rarely you'll get an acute virus.
1: Alright. So very helpful. So the the people you're most worried about are when they have you said INR is elevated, they're also they also have encephalopathy and the really high enzyme elevation. And and kind of it's very helpful how to sh- think about how to, you know, what the etiologies might be. So in this in this patient, it's it's pretty clear this is uh this is Tylenol induced. And probably we don't have time to get into the whole uh, Tylenol algorithm, but we can we can link. You had a nice tutorial that we had gone through um, in the pre-reading for this about talking about NAC, uh, so people can check that out. And uh, Elena, did you want to do any sorts of recaps? I mean, we've talked about so much tonight. Uh, want to? Yeah. So what do, what did we talk about? Remind the audience. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. What did we learn? <laughs>
2: On the spot, huh? Um, so, I think from the beginning, helpful to think about the liver enzymes and other tests in categories of what pattern of injury. So, hepatocellular, cholestatic, or mixed. And you can use the R value to help with that, but also just looking at how elevated the ALT is compared to the alkaline phosphatase, Uh, and then reasons for pretty severe hepatocellular injury would be things like uh, viral hepatitis, autoimmune hepatitis, drug-induced liver injury, and in the right setting, ischemic hepatitis. So, some of that differential is based on the patient's story and history. Uh, But It's always pretty safe to check for acute viral hepatitis. You don't need to check for things like EBV or CMV in every patient. And then with elevations pretty high, you can also check for autoimmune hepatitis with an ANA and a smooth muscle antibody and uh, immunoglobulins. And then an ultrasound is also a pretty safe bet to start for imaging and seeing if the patient has any evidence of cholestatic disease as well. And then for isolated findings of alkaline phosphatase, making sure to recheck again, as Paul Williams would do. And then (laughs) uh, if it remains elevated or if the patient has any symptoms, getting a right upper quadrant ultrasound is also a pretty safe bet. And then checking an AMA to see if they have any evidence of PPC. And at the same time, you could get an ANA and an anti-smooth muscle antibody at that time too. And then for hyperbilirubinemia, make sure to think about how long has this been going on? Could it be a medication, a uh, hemolysis, or then is it a genetic syndrome like Gilbert's? And then I think that the last one, thinking about in pregnancy, there are definitely changes in your liver tests and Pregnant patients are welcome to get the most common liver problems. Uh, They also often have intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And then you can see elevations in their alkaline phosphatase with preeclampsia as well, and along with their ALT and AST. And then I think the last one would be acute liver failure. It's actually pretty rare, uh, but it's defined by the presence of a coagulopathy in addition to hepatic encephalopathy and elevations in the liver enzymes that are quite high.
0: I feel completely extraneous. Like I don't, I could have, (laughs) I could have been waxing my kitchen floor. I didn't need to be here. I don't know.
2: I feel supported.
1: That was great. uh elliot anything to add to that or any specific take-home points that you want the audience to remember i mean clearly you've just taught elena basically everything about the liver (laughs) and uh how to how to work up any any liver tests that are out of whack
3: Uh, i'm not sure i can add much to that except to say (laughs) that it's amazing how far we've come together (laughs) we've covered a lot of
1: ground we have walk
2: out of this call room a new person
1: (laughs) oh yeah we should mention to the audience that um well actually i don't want to get elena in trouble elena is in the comfort of her own home she was just listening to some tropical house music before we started recording
2: in a nice king-size bed right
1: Uh, elliot anything you'd like to plug your your twitter any websites any organizations world is your oyster
3: well, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be uh, on this podcast. It's, uh, it's rare to, uh, to, I listen to you guys uh, uh, when, uh, uh, in the morning when I'm exercising, and so uh, I'm just excited to be a part of it. And I have very little to plug, just very thankful to be here. Check out Liver Twitter if you'd like to learn about the latest in liver research and meet the uh, fun people of Liverland.
1: Yes, I could say that it is a it it is a fun crowd. Uh so yeah. I can see why Elena is wanting to join the uh GI world. Uh it's it's a good it's a good gig. All good right. Korea.
2: Liverland sounds like a fun time. <laughs> 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 like a theme park. <laughs> All right. I'll stop now. <laughs>
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Great stuff as always. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. So we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode. Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free, CME, and mock credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so finally, with all that, I've been Dr. (laughs) Matthew Frank Watto.
2: Elena Gibson here.
1: <laughs> great short
0: to the point. I love it. We would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Not really for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.